Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through the Lord Jesus. Amen. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is near. This day of the Lord is the day when Yahweh himself will show up in the world to reorient his disordered creation back towards his fullness and to what he intended his creation to be. And in this regard, the presence of God in the world means both destruction and restoration. Destroying what is not part of the goodness that he created and intended and restoring what has been corrupted. And as the prophet Joel invites our imaginations today to consider the day of the Lord, he does so in a way that situates us in the dust. Joel describes in the opening of his writing what seems to be a massive swarm of locusts, like large grasshoppers, and it sweeps through and it ravages the land. The land was full of vegetation and full of life, and then it lies decimated at this locust swarm. All the plants are stripped bare, the greenery becomes empty branches, the produce is devoured up, fields that were full of harvest become utterly destroyed, so that all that is left is dirt and dust. And the stripped plants and the scorching sun, it seems, back in chapter 1, give way to fires. The land is barren and dry, life is ripped away, and all that is left is dust and ashes. But Joel sees the decimation that this locust army brings as parallel to another army, a cosmic army that is going to show up and blot out the sun and blot out the moon and stars, darkening the skies swarming over mountains and infiltrating cities and homes when God shows up with his presence on the day of the Lord. He imagines that day as a great cosmic upheaval, the creation going from its Garden of Eden goodness, from its ordered state on day seven to unraveling and falling apart in a great reversal, returning to darkness and into the dust from which it came. This is not all that the day of the Lord is. It's not just darkness and destruction. Joel imagines the presence of Yahweh showing up in the creation and where the creation has been reduced to dust and ashes. He imagines a beautiful garden springing forth. Rains come down at God's command. Waters start flowing just like in the beginning in page two of Genesis The watered grounds begin to bring forth plants and food. The pastures are turning green. The trees are producing fruit. There's fig trees. There's olives growing. The vines begin to flourish and new wine flows and oil abounds. Eden blessing bursts forth at the blessing and presence of God because God's end goal is not destruction, but the abundance of life and flourishing for his creation even if it means he must bring life out of the dust. And as Joel imagines this great day of the Lord, he situates the people that he is speaking to in the position of this dust. 
On one side, if you will, thinking about time, on one side he sees the devastation of locusts, like this cosmic army reducing the land to dry, dusty ground. And on the other side, he sees the land bursting forth with life at the presence of God, Eden blessing flowing out with water and food. And the people that Joel is speaking to, they're right in the middle between these events. The very present reality of destruction and desolation and the future promise of restoration. Their abundant land has been ravaged. They're experiencing that reality and the promise of Eden blessing that has not yet been realized in its fullness. And from this position in the middle, in this place of dust, Joel calls the people to repent. The word repent doesn't show up in our English translation for this evening, which is completely fine. The word is return, return. Or maybe better for us to consider tonight, turn around, turn around. Even now, turn around. The way you're heading needs to change. Change course, turn around, because the reality is that whatever aspects of our lives and ourselves and our behaviors that are not in line with God's Eden blessing, whatever is part of us that's not in line with God's character of love and compassion, those things cannot remain on the day of the Lord. Anything that we are up to that is headed in a different direction than what God is doing is going to be reduced to dust. So turn around, Joel says. Change course. And this language of turn around is not language of individual repentance as we might think of it at times. This doesn't call for each individual person to privately and secretly feel sorry or guilty or something like this. This is a corporate call. The language of you in this passage in Hebrew is all plural. If I grew up in another part of this country, I might say something like, all y'all turn around, right? All y'all, you all do this together, turn around. And what do we see Joel advocating for? Everyone, gather a great assembly. Everyone, stop whatever you're doing. Bring the elderly, bring the nursing infants, men and women, young and old, no matter what you're doing, stop it and get together and turn around. Even if there's a wedding about to happen, as Joel points out, postpone it. Get the bride, get the groom, don't go forward at the wedding, get the priest, get everybody together. Everyone as a huge community is supposed to turn around, to change course together. Upheave your present way of living. Reorient your behaviors and direct it back to God because when his presence show up, it's going to be a massive upheaval and reorientation of this broken world. Normally in those days, if there would be individual or corporate grief over a situation, it might involve people doing something called tearing their garments or rending their garments as a public act of grief. Which it might be helpful for us to remember these days that back then, people didn't have a lot of clothes. Like Having four or five outfits was probably like a max amount of clothing. So ripping a pair of clothing was a costly action. But Joel says, sure, weep and mourn, but don't bother tearing your garments. Your act of turning needs to be bigger, needs to be more costly than tearing garments. 
What God desires is for you to tear your hearts, he says. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, I don't think this language of tearing hearts makes much sense to us today, um, especially given that it's Valentine's Day. To have a heart torn in two or ripped in two in our way of thinking about our bodies and how we conceptualize our human experience means something like having a broken heart. And a broken heart is what happens when you lose someone you love or you experience some sort of great rejection. That's not what Joel is talking about here when he says, tear your hearts. It's not what he's talking about at all. Or there's other ways that people conceive of this tearing of the heart. And actually, I was reminded of a a 90s boy band song. It's tearing up my heart to be with you. That one? NSYNC, anybody? No. Anyway, it's about this emotional turmoil. Emotional turmoil of wanting to be in a relationship with somebody, but they don't want to be in a relationship with you, and so their heart's just getting ripped apart, right? We conceive of the heart as an emotional center, We associate it with romantic relationships today. And so it's Valentine's Day. We see hearts all over the place. And there's not anything inherently wrong with doing that. Every culture and every time conceives of the human experience in relation to the body in different ways. It's just a normal thing that we do. But we do need to recognize that it is not what is meant by heart in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. I know I've mentioned this before, but it's important for us tonight. The heart is the seat of the will. The heart is where you make decisions from. The heart is where thoughts come from and where motives usher forth. It is where plans are made and it is how they are made. And behaviors that come out of our deepest desires, they grow out of our hearts in the ancient Israelite imagination. I think I've kind of mentioned this before. If we were to conceive of this today, we'd probably refer to it as like our head or our brain, right? So when God says, tear your hearts, not your garments, what he seems to be saying is he's not interested in some outward show of grief or some showy act of turning around or repenting. What he wants is for our wills, for our deepest desires, for what we plan and the way that we go about making plans and executing those plans, for our motives. He wants all of that to be the focus of this great turnaround, of this change of course. He wants us to drastically and intensely reorient our thinking, and if we must, to set aside and destroy our ways of behaving and planning that are out of line with what God is up to. Instead, to align our hearts, to align our wills, our motives, our deepest desires with God. And this act of turning is supposed to be such a deep and total reorientation of our very being. Nothing is exempt. That again, it's like tearing our will. We as a community, according to Joel, cannot be the same but are supposed to be a community of people whose lives are continually marked by the desire to change course, to have our wills turn around and to turn towards God's desires and will. Joel again writes, turn around, change course, turn to Yahweh your God, because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. 
And he turns around from sending calamity. This description of God as gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love, it comes from a story in the Exodus that might be familiar to us all of the golden calf. The people had been saved by grace, brought out of Egypt by God's own choosing and doing. And in the wilderness, he provided them with water on that dry, dusty land, and he provided them with manna and quail from the sky. He brought them to Sinai, and he made a covenant with them. And they said, yes, we're going to follow along with what you say. Moses goes up on the mount. He is meeting with God for a number of days, and the people get impatient. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, make us some gods who will go before us. As for this guy Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And Aaron builds them a golden calf. This is ridiculous, right? They're his graciously chosen people. They've experienced salvation firsthand. I mean, they walked on dry ground with water on both sides. They sang in praise of God's salvation after he drowned Pharaoh's army in the waters. They've experienced all of these acts of grace and salvation firsthand. And yet, they turn around away from their relationship with God and they go a different direction. Yahweh's furious. He tells Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to kill all of them and I'm going to start over with you. Which he could do. He'd actually be faithful to his promise to Abraham because Moses was still a descendant of Abraham. But Yahweh doesn't do that. Instead, he points, uh, Moses points out to him that it would look bad for his reputation. What will the nations around you think if you do that? These are a great people. Keep your promise in this way. So he relents. And Moses instead goes to Yahweh and says, why don't you kill me instead? Take my life in their place. I'll be a substitute for you. And Yahweh says, no, I'm not going to accept you as a substitute. Instead, the plan at first is, all right, you're going to go into the promised land. I'll still lead you, but I will not be in your midst. A messenger of mine will go instead. His presence cannot abide in the midst of this people. Think again of the day of the Lord. If his presence is there in the fullness of its goodness and its power, it would be dangerous for them because their hearts are not fully set on him. Their way of living as a community would be reduced to stubble, by the sheer goodness of God's presence. And yet eventually God does decide to go with them and to put his presence right in their midst, his Eden blessing right in the midst of the community. And do you know why? It's because he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I look back at the story of the golden calf this week and it struck me there doesn't seem to be any clear indication that the people actually repented of what they had done with the golden calf, which is crazy to me. There is a moment where they leave a whole bunch of jewelry or sometimes the translation is ornaments out in the wilderness But Yahweh never says to them, because you repented so well, because you turned to me with all your heart, now I will be merciful to you and forgive you. No, he's compassionate and he forgives them, even though they never say to him publicly, we've sinned, we're sorry. 
Even though they never seem to tear their wills and reorient their lives fully towards him, he forgives them because his very character is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And if this God is willing to forgive and show mercy, even when people do not turn to him with all their heart, how much more ought we to turn towards him with all our heart and reorient our lives away from sin and towards his desires and his will? This passage to me is so startling and so beautiful that the call to tear our hearts to drastically overhaul our desires and our will is predicated on a God whose very definition of himself is compassionate and forgiving. The call to repentance is not turn towards God so that he will finally love you, but rather turn towards God because he is love. He's the fullness of that love and he is loving. Turn towards God because his presence in your midst by the Spirit is already here dwelling within our hearts and because he has promised that his presence will bring about Eden blessing in the end. That means that anything that we are up to within our hearts, our thoughts, our wills, anything that is out of line with God's restoration, with his reign in Jesus, it's going to be reduced to dust. But turning towards him means orienting our wills towards that which will last forever. And we are already part of this in the spirit, right? The character of God in the past, you see, thinking about being in this position of dust like the people of Joel. The character of God in the past urges us to change course still today. And not just as individuals, but corporately. To work together so that our lives might be brought ever more in line with Jesus. And God's character in the past, we trust, is on full display in Jesus, his son, And Jesus doesn't wait for people to apologize. He doesn't wait for people to tear their hearts and reorient their lives towards him. Instead, he forgives them, even when they don't know what they're doing. And he gives himself to all people by dying on a cross. He dies in order to deal with the very problem of our distorted hearts and heal the corruption that is there deep within us. God's character in the past urges us as a community to adopt a daily posture together, an ethos of changing course, of always turning towards him. And God's character in the past also drives his promises for the future. In the words of the prophet Joel, God promises to pour out his spirit on young and old men and women, all of them together. There will be a massive community reorientation because of the spirit. The spirit that brings a beautiful upheaval to our wills and to our desires. The spirit that refashions our hearts and aligns them to God's reign in Jesus. Joel declares that is what is coming. And we trust, as Peter declares in Acts chapter 2, that that day has already begun. The spirit is already at work living and moving in you and in me, changing the community. Joel again declares this is what's coming. We experience it now All the more reason that if God is promising to heal our hearts, promising to make a drastic reorientation of this community, how much more ought we to work together now in the present to turn around, to work together by his spirit that lives in us to tear our hearts 
and not our garments. This call of repentance to turn is a posture that we live in all the time as the community of faith. It does not mean that we are utter failures in everything that we do. It's not true. God has given us his spirit. We've been doing lots of wonderful and good things in line with his will. But it also means that we recognize that there's other aspects and motives at work within us too. The spirit lives in us, but it means we recognize that our hearts are therefore in two places. Our hearts are in one place, an aspect of forgiven and loved and redeemed in Jesus. And our hearts are also still bound to this thing called sin. And so we do the work together of continually turning, tearing apart, turning towards away from our sin and away and towards the God we know in Jesus. And this posture of turning, of changing course is a reminder that like the people of Israel in Joel's day, we find ourselves in the dust. We experience on both sides of us, if you will, on one side, the devastation of this broken creation. We come to terms with and experience our mortality, glimpses that the broken way of this creation continues to abound. We see the desolation. But on the other side, if you will, as we sit in this dust, we also, from this position, have an eye to the future. Because God has promised that water of life will flow on the dry dust of the earth. And Eden blessing will abound in all its fullness. When Jesus returns, gets his hands dirty and refashions the dust and resurrects our bodies by breathing his spirit in us that we live in today. Tonight as part of this service, whether you choose to receive ashes or not. Part of my prayer for us all is that Again, regardless of receiving them, these ashes, this act, this symbolism tonight would be a reminder that the present way of the world is coming to an end. That the ashes, the emptiness, the mortality, it's coming to an end. And therefore we have work to do because there is an aspect of our heart that is immersed in this dust and brokenness. We have work to do to align our lives. But my prayer is also that these ashes are a reminder not only of that present reality, but of hope. That the ashes become a sign before our God who has promised that out of the dust, he will bring resurrection and restoration of his world. All the more are we to align our lives, therefore, with his. And underneath and surrounding all of this, God's character, who is forgiving, loving, who shows abundant mercy, who is abounding in steadfast love even before we turn to him. So let's turn to him together throughout our lives and with our lives. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.